Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Roy Dykes. Roy is the owner of Jetmasters, a company specialising in high-pressure water jetting equipment and safety training courses. Roy, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure. It's a real pleasure having yourself with us as well, Roy. Now, the purpose of this discussion, first and foremost, is to establish your take on leadership. So to begin with, if we just look at that word leader in isolation for a second, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. Well, I think to me, um, leadership leader um, is basically what it says on the tin. One's got to be there at the front, set an example. Um, uh, uh, casting down through through the ranks, if you like, um, that the leaders take, the leaders' morals, the leaders' uh, vision, um, making sure that things are done fairly. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're the leader of a, of a, of a government or a political party or a company or even a Boy Scout troop comes to that. You, you've got to set the standards um, and you've got to be prepared to take some fairly tough decisions uh, which may not be popular, but then being a leader isn't about popularity. It's about making sure that, in my case, uh, the company survives um, and everybody within the company survives um, to go on to a brighter future. Mm. There are difficult decisions that have to be taken in leadership. Absolutely right. It isn't all sunshine and rainbows and stories of success. There are some very difficult sides of it. And there are some quite complicated discussions that sometimes have to be had. And we've seen that as well a lot in the context of the uh, the current climate as well, haven't we? The challenges that COVID-19 mm. has brought about, uh, no less. It's really tested mm. the ability of today's leaders to be adaptable more than anything, um, especially with regard to not just innovating the business if necessary, but also people management skills because certain people will not need too much motivation to work under new conditions, be that working remotely or working on sites under new safety procedures, but others may need just that little bit of extra reassurance from those above them. So that's a challenge that leaders have had to take on during this time, isn't it? Mm, mm, mm. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky because I, I have um, a very good workforce. Um, they're, they're, they're all dedicated. They're, 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 they're not in it just for themselves. They understand the situation that the country is in, uh, and they also understand the situation that, that the company is in. And, and um, they, they, they fully accept, they not, may not be happy about it, but they fully accept that there are sacrifices to be made so that we can move on. Uh, and when, when this, 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 this pandemic is all over and we can get back to normal, uh, that there will be something to get back to. How has adapting to the pandemic and the challenges that it's brought been for you in general as a business? Um, do you think sort of staff members have taken to it quite well from that sort of mental health and well-being perspective and they really just cracked on with it? Or have you needed to just be a little bit more sort of there for them to keep the communication channels open that little bit more? Um, well, we, we've, um, we, we furloughed um, one or two um, um, uh, and they, they accept that they have to be furloughed, um, uh, and it was a, it was a case of uh, we we have to furlough you or we have to lose you, and I don't want to lose you because when things get back to normal, I'm going to need you. Um, the, the others that we've managed to keep on, of course, we've we've had to rethink our market because our traditional market dried up, gone, finished. 
Um, so we had to kind of reinvent ourselves um, to stay alive, to do other things that were loosely um, uh, engaged around what we were doing, but it certainly wasn't our main core business. So I think one's got to be adaptable, um, explain what's going on, um, and also looking after the staff. Their mental health is quite important. Um, and those that we furloughed, I made sure that we made contact with them at least once a week just to make sure that they were okay uh, and everything was fine. And and that appears to be working. Mm, that's incredibly uh, positive to hear. Um, on the other hand, however, there's been enormous amount of debate about um, clarity and transparency relating to government guidelines of how to operate safely and also how to reopen safely. And can, in light of that debate, uh, Roy, I'd like to understand, has it been clear to you what's been expected of you throughout this pandemic and continues to be so, or has it been a little bit more complicated than that? <laughs> Um, well, at times, I have to say that the, that um, the advice coming out of the of the government has been as clear as mud. Um, but one has to pick away at the dross and try to get to to what they actually mean by that. Um, uh, and again, some of the statements that are being made seem to contradict other statements that are being made by other people. Um, and it's very it's very difficult. I mean, we are a micro business. We we don't have um, the resources to um, to look into everything and throw it at our legal department to find out what's going on. We've got to kind of do it ourselves. And they could have been the government could have been clearer. But I accept that that this situation we find ourselves in is unprecedented, uh, and that there's no there's no rule book to go back to to look down and say what do we do now. Um, but I still feel that the government could have been a wee bit clearer on what they expected of not only companies, but of the general public as well. But on, on, on the whole, I think that the government is doing a pretty good job in, 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 in what they're trying to achieve, although they do have their critics, but then you can't please everybody. Mm, that's that's exactly right and um, the measures that they brought in for uh, small businesses um, have been integral not just the furlough scheme but also small business loans as well however it has emerged um, in recent days that um, landlords will be demanding full office rent um, very soon um, and thinking about that and the fact that there's been a real debate over our working practices uh, brought up during this time about whether we're going to move towards remote working and working from home as opposed to the conventional office space do you think that there is a future for that office space in the world of work as we move into the new normal, Roy? The, 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 the feedback I'm getting, um, for, first of all, is that, that we, we haven't been in our office now for over 12 weeks, apart from going in to check the post. Um, our, our landlord uh, is being um, pretty hard-lined about it, um, paid a full rent or, or, or suffered the consequences, which is disappointing. Um, so we are working from home. But the, the the staff that are currently working from home, me included, um, are all of the opinion that it's all very nice to think about working from home for a short term. But after a while, you do get a bit stir crazy. Um, uh, and, and we're humans. We, we crave interaction with other people. Mm. I mean, a, the simple act of shaking hands um, is something that is 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 missed. So whilst I think that there is there is certainly a place for working at home, um, uh, th- there is also a place for the office where where one can interact and have a chat around the coffee machine. Um, but the I mean the other benefit of working from home, let's say one or two days a week, um, is that you're then taking the strain. Certainly in the London area, you're taking the strain off of the transport system. Mm. Um, 
uh, and also with, um, with with the traffic now, it would appear in London back to more or less um, pre-pandemic levels. Um, working from home would reduce the pollution levels as well. So there is a place uh, for, for working from home, but every day of the week to work from home, I, I think would be uh, a bit of a problem. Again, one looks at the mental health of people as well. You mm. you you need you need that interaction. Looking at somebody on the screen and having, a, if you like, a, a conference that way, um, and actually meeting somebody is different. Um, and we, as humans, we crave this this human interaction. I mean, I know I certainly do. I, I, I miss the, the, the simple act of shaking hands. So, yeah, I think that working from home has got a place, but I still think that the office um, is going to be there um, for quite some time yet. Yeah, I think um, I do agree in the sense that pre-pandemic, we may have took that sort of human interaction side of things for granted uh, within the uh, the workplace because we are social creatures as human beings, as you rightly said there. And I think you, you're absolutely right. I mean, the capital city especially, we could well see in the interest of sustainability an approach more toward working in the office two or three days a week and then working from home the rest of the time. So we could see a little bit of an integration of both approaches there in future. Mm, yeah, I think, I think there's, a, there's a place for, for each. Um, and, and again, working working from the office does have other benefits because certainly working from home, and I, I've known an awful lot of people that are working from home, um, uh, they're possibly, and I'm not pointing the fingers at anybody here, but they're possibly working all day in their pyjamas. Um, uh, uh, whereas when they're going to the office, they're getting up, they're having a shower, they're getting dressed, they're going out looking respectable. There is an effort to be made here, you know? And whilst you're making that effort in the shower and you're getting yourself, you are mentally preparing yourself for work. And if we think about the new normal in a little bit more depth just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program, uh, Roy. I'm interested to understand what you envision for yourself and for the Jet Masters business over the course of the next year as we adjust to the challenges that the new normal will bring and what you really sort of hope to achieve as we move through the pandemic and begin to focus more on the long-term future. Well, I think I think that the, 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 uh, the medium to long-term uh, for, for, for Jetmaster, certainly, um, is pretty rosy because we've managed to survive through uh, the lockdown. Um, we, we've taken advantage of the furlough, certainly, but we've not managed that we've not needed to take any loans. We still have um, a bit of money in the bank, and we're we're paying our suppliers and we're paying our um, our staff. Um, uh, and now we, we are about, as of June, we are about to actually go back to starting to, to do our core business again, which is good. Um, so there's some money coming in. We are now actively looking for more staff. Uh, we, we intend to bring more staff into the UK and we're looking to expand. We do work in the Middle East at the moment. We're looking to expand into the Middle East more. And we're also looking at opening up uh, sometime later on this year um, of opening up a, a branch in, in India. So the future is looking good. Certainly seems the case. Um, it's brilliant to hear that there's such ambitious plans in the wake of all of the um, uncertainty, uh, Roy, for sure. And, you know, it's one thing actually talking about these plans and then it's one thing looking back and reflecting when they've come to fruition. So I think it would be fantastic from a listener's point of view to perhaps catch up at some point in the uh, the next year or so and have you back on with us just to see how things are getting on in that regard, for sure. Yes, yes. Although um, uh, in, in, in my experience, um, the, the, the plans are one thing, uh, reality yeah. is another. Um, uh, yes, let, let's catch up maybe in six, nine, twelve months' time and see whether our plans have actually come to fruition.
And let's hope that there's some good news to share at that point as well, for sure. Um, Roy, I've got to say, it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, other programme today. And I really appreciate the time taken to uh, do just that. Um, But until we do speak again in future, which I'm sure we will, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on, because we're certainly not quite out of the woods with this one yet, that's for sure. Well, thank you so much. Um, And also to you, please uh, stay safe. That was Roy Dyke speaking, the owner of Jetmasters. And just to echo those final words there, do stay home where you can, do look after yourselves and do stay safe because it really, really does make a difference in saving lives. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is now an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods, 
certain services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing, 
But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style 
And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, 
what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of, thinking global but acting local we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us 
to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? 
Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that 
as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all us all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.